This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSTV Bouquet. I'm Tracy Bumgard, driving the show with Jualani Tulo, Wusani Matibula and Mosibudi Makura. The top stories on Africa Digest this hour. Judgment on a petition to nullify Uhuru Kenyatta's re-election will be delivered on Friday. More than 20 people are now thought to have died in Texas as a result of Tropical Storm Harvey. In economics, Zambian Power Utility and Glencore's Mopani Copper Mines reach an agreement to restore full power supply to the mine. And in sport, Cricket South Africa appoints Otis Gibson as head coach of the country's national men's team. But first, the news with Jolani. Thank you, Tracy. Good afternoon. Thousands of Zimbabweans have marched through Harare in a show of support for First Lady Grace Mugabe, who evaded assault allegations in South Africa by claiming diplomatic immunity. The march organized by ZANU-PF came two weeks after she was accused of attacking a 20-year-old model at an upmarket Santon Hotel. The marchers chanted slogans and sang praises for the so-called Dr. Mother. Shopkeepers say they were forced to close their businesses and join the march. 52-year-old Grace Mugabe is seen as a possible successor when her husband leaves office. At least eight people, including civilians, have been killed and 29 injured in the latest bout of growing sectarian unrest in the Central African Republic. The UN says this has prompted warnings of genocide. In the past week, there were several reports of clashes around the central town of Bria. Earlier this month, the area was a scene of clashes between a majority Muslim rebel group and a predominantly Christian militia called the Anti-Balaka, which left at least 13 people dead. However, it was not immediately clear who was behind the latest violence. The Central African Republic was pitched into a civil war when Muslim and Christian militias in 2013, after President Francois Bouzizé Christian, was overthrown by the Seleka factions of a rebel coalition. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has led his first cabinet meeting in five months after a long stay in London where he received treatment for an undisclosed condition. Buhari led the Federal Executive Council after meeting the National Women's Basketball Team, which won the FIBA Women's Afro Basket Final in Mali on Sunday. Buhari was shown holding the Golden Tournament Trophy and smiling alongside the green-clad team and was joined by Vice President Yemi Osinbajo in a photograph issued by the presidency. Last week's cabinet meeting, which was due to be the first since Buhari's return, was cancelled without explanation, leading to media speculation that the president had not fully recovered. 
Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso has been slapped with five additional counts of contravening the Immigrations Act in South Africa. This after appearing in the Port Elizabeth Masters Court for his second bail application on Wednesday. A ruling will be given next Friday. Omotoso also faces 22 counts of contravening the Sexual Offences Act. His new legal representative, Alvin Rousseau, presented the court with a letter from Home Affairs which verifies a temporary visa. NPA spokesperson Tep as the immigration officer has informed me a few minutes ago that in fact there are five charges uh, of contravening uh, the Immigration Act and as the NBA we're going to work on those but one must also be aware of the fact that we were a bit confused as to whether we will be able to come up with the charges at, at, at some stage but we did that successfully at the, Haw- the Hawks, arrested him. Going forward, we will be dealing with that based on the fact that there are five charges of, of contravening the Immig- Immigration Act. And finally, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Ra'ad al-Hussein, has criticized U.S. President Donald Trump's attack on news organizations. Speaking in Arizona last week, Trump defended his response to a right-wing rally in Virginia and criticized news organizations for their coverage of the violence in the town of Charlottesville. He called journalists truly dishonest people. Al-Hussein says Trump could be held responsible if journalists are harmed. To call uh, these news organizations uh, fake uh, does uh, tremendous damage. And to refer to individual journalists in this way, I have to ask the question, is this not uh, an incitement uh, for others to attack journalists? For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. Thanks, Jualani. Hearing of a petition filed by Kenya's opposition leader, Raila Odinga, to seek nullification of President Uhuru Kenyatta's re-election has ended in the country's Supreme Court, pending judgment on Friday, the 1st of September. James Shimanyula filed this following report. Kenya's opposition leader, Raila Odinga, was represented by 25 lawyers while President Uru Kenyatta had 10 lawyers and the Electoral Commission, which supervised this year's election, was represented by more than 10 lawyers. Odinga filed a petition before Kenya's highest and final court, the Supreme Court, contending through his lawyers that the August 8th presidential election was characterized by malpractices that are not allowed by the Constitution and laws of Kenya. But lawyers appearing for Uhuru Kenyatta asserted that their client was duly elected and dismissed Odinga's lawyers' submissions that the election was full of flaws that should compel the Supreme Court judges to nullify the re-election of Uhuru Kenyatta as president. As the petition approached its final stages, the seven judges of the Supreme Court ordered the Electoral Commission to provide vital election documents to the registrar of the court who in turn prepared the two reports and handed them to the judges. One of Odinga's lawyers, James Orengo, used the two reports to submit that the election was not free and fair. These reports that have come out prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these elections were shambolic. I can't believe what I'm seeing. 
urging the seven judges to take into consideration the controversial issue of electronically transmitted election results, the very transmission that showed that some results were not correct in one way or another, Odinga's lawyer James Orengo said. The issue of transmission by electronic means is an important function in which this court must be satisfied that what was transmitted is what is provided for under the law. And the law says it is not the text. In fact, the question of text is not provided for under the law. The law requires the prescribed forms are the ones which must be scanned and must be transmitted for purposes of verification and for purposes of accuracy and credibility. Now I want to finalize by saying your lordships and my ladies will find out that this election was a shambolic election. That was James Orengo, one of the lawyers representing Kenya's opposition leader Raila Odinga in a petition challenging it to overturn the re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta. Paul Muite, one of the lawyers representing the country's electoral commission, minced no words when he honorably and tersely submitted that. This is a petition that stands for dismissal. During the hearing of the petition, Kenya's Attorney General, Githumuigai, appeared in court as one of the friends of the court, meaning a person that makes submission in court to help it arrive at a conclusive decision and the very person that takes no sides in a case. In other words, Githumuigai, as a friend of the court, was indeed a neutral friend of the court. His submission eluded from the legal cracks of the submissions made by Odinga, Kenyatta, and electoral commission lawyers. Githumuigai chose to zero in on the legal theory of election per se. Elections are not about politicians. Elections are not about political parties. Elections are about voters. We must keep the voter in mind. It is his election. It is his will. That was Kenya's Attorney General. Githumuigai reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. More than 20 people are now thought to have died in Texas as a result of Tropical Storm Harvey, and officials fear the death toll could still rise as search and rescue efforts continue throughout the region. Texas is struggling with the huge number of people needing help, and last night the city of Houston imposed a curfew to deter looting. Nearly a third of Harris County, which includes the city, is underwater. The BBC's reporter, Nada Torfik, spoke with those trying to cope in Harvey's aftermath. The sun may have broken through the dark clouds, but Texans are still very much in Harvey's grip. Emergency responders spent yet another day trying to rescue the many still imprisoned in their homes by the rising water. But among the most urgent pleas for help was to find those still unaccounted for. We have a guy who left last night and never showed up. Sometime this morning they found his vehicle in some flooded water. These state troopers are searching on a ranch on the outskirts of Columbus, Texas. So we've gone as far as we can by car at this point. The state policemen are just suiting up. They're walking into this point of the road that has dipped, it's now filled with flowing water. 
After almost 20 minutes, they return. No sign of the guy at all. He still could have come out somewhere further down the creek and found a ride. But at this point, we just don't know. We've got to keep hope, but it doesn't look good right now. In Houston, police went on a similar search, only for one of their own. Sergeant Steve Perez drowned after his patrol car took on water. His wife begged him to stay home, but the 30-year veteran of the force was determined to serve his city. He was a sweet, gentle public servant. Police Chief Art Acevedo was emotional as he spoke about his colleague. Once our dive team got there, it was too treacherous to, to go under and look for him. So we made a decision to leave officers there uh, waiting until the morning because as much as we wanted to recover him last night, we could not put another more officers at risk for what we knew in our hearts was going to be a recovery mission. There's just not enough volunteers here and people to help. The Bayou City is struggling to provide people with their most basic needs. At the city's main shelter, they were at double their capacity, leaving some evacuees to sleep on the cold tile floor. I hate this. I've never been in a place like this before, and it just really hurt my heart. <laughs> to see this, like, you know, everybody from my neighborhood, that's making me feel better that they're here, that they're not under that water. I just want to go home, but, like, our city of Houston is just gone, you know? For many, it is an overwhelming feeling of helplessness. Latonia Buckley and her three young children struggled to get to this temporary shelter in Katy, Texas, only to be told that they will need to leave. We had to have a mattress, actually take a mattress, and put the children and the dogs on the mattress and float the mattress to the front of the subdivision where they had trucks waiting to take us to another elementary school where then they had army trucks to actually pick us up and bring us here. It's, it's really devastating, you know, to be at a point that you can't protect your kids. You can't, you can't provide for your kids. You know, it, it doesn't matter what you have in the bank. It doesn't matter. You have nowhere to go. That report by the BBC's Nada Torfik in Texas. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Despite a new administration in Washington, the commitment of the United States to Africa's development remains unwavering. That's the assurance from the new USAID Southern Africa Mission Director, John Grok, who will be responsible for all USAID programming in the SADC region for the next four years. USAID's programs in the region promote trade and investment, combat gender-based violence, increase basic literacy and support the South African government to fight the dual epidemics of HIV, AIDS and TB, amongst others. 
Mr. Grok paid a visit to Channel Africa to tell us more about his past experience on the African continent and his future vision. Well, I have worked in Africa before quite a long time ago. The early part of the century, I worked in West Africa. I was based in Dakar, Senegal, and I spent a lot of time working in Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, and Nigeria. But of course, I recognize that Southern Africa is very, very different. This really is a new region for me, and I consider myself to be a student of Southern Africa because in the short time I've been here, I realized that I have quite a lot to learn. For listeners who does not know about all the different aid assistance program mm-hmm. from the American side to Africa, what exactly is USAID? The United States Agency for International Development is the United States government's primary organization for delivering uh, foreign economic assistance. And we work in about 100 countries throughout the world. Many of those countries are in Africa. And we call ourselves a development agency because we do development work. And by development, I mean that we help underdeveloped countries to develop their economies. We come in here as partners. We come in here as friends. We come in here with resources to help bring prosperity and development to the countries within which we work. And then the assistance, is it more often infrastructural development side or do you also deal with gender issues, with health issues like HIV AIDS and so on? What is the scope of your activities? Well, the scope is wide ranging. For example, the country where I just left to come here, Pakistan, we had a very large infrastructure program, dams, roads, power generation facilities. But here in South Africa, the program is actually quite different. We have a very large health program, which features working with the government of South Africa to get control of the AIDS epidemic. Similarly, we have a very important program working with the South African government and South African civil society to combat gender-based violence because it is such a problem here. So we do work on a variety or in a variety of development sectors. And that's one of the things that I like the most about my job because I'm always learning about the different things that we do at USAID. Now, although you are based in Pretoria in South Africa, you will be responsible for overseeing Southern Africa. Which other countries will tie into your oversight role here and your assistance? Officially, I'm the mission director for USAID South Africa, as well as the USAID missions in Botswana, Namibia, Lesotho, and Swaziland. But our regional mission in Pretoria actually provides various services to 14 countries throughout Southern Africa, stretching as far north as Malawi and as far east as Madagascar. So we have quite a big responsibility here. The region, is there a particular vision that you have coming fresh on this assignment here now that's different from what predecessors have done and what the office has taken care of before? Well, to me, the vision is to expedite the day when the countries of Southern Africa no longer need development assistance. And I'm happy to say that in many ways, Southern Africa countries, including and especially South Africa, have made enormous progress. Nevertheless, there are some unique challenges to Southern Africa that are really going to take a lot 
more work to resolve. And first and foremost is the HIV AIDS epidemic. I envision that in the coming years, we at USAID will continue to work hand in hand with the South African government and with other governments in the region to get that epidemic under control. But another important part of my vision is to work with the South African government and the South African private sector, the private business sector, to be able to take advantage of the enormous assets and advantages that South Africa has in terms of being an economic engine for the entire region. This country has so much going for it, and I would like to see not only South Africans, but other countries in the region take advantage of those advantages to develop the economy, particularly to create jobs for young people. Are there big changes under the new administration when you look at foreign aid from USAID to Southern Africa and this region now? I think it's important to note that the United States' commitment to foreign assistance, particularly in the health sector, is going to remain strong and sustained. There's a bipartisan political commitment back in Washington, despite the change of administrations, that much of the work we do, including under the uh, president's uh, emergency plan for AIDS relief, that we're going to continue with that. And clearly, there's a recognition that promoting economic development, not only in Southern Africa, but throughout the world, is in America's interests. And I don't expect that that will change. Despite the change in administration in Washington, and of course we see administrations change every four to eight years, the commitment of the United States to Africa and to Africa's development remains unwavering. Certain things may change, but that commitment will not change. And I'm thrilled to be here for the next four years to be a part of that commitment. That was the new USAID Southern Africa Mission Director John Grok talking to Channel Africa's Janine Kutzer. The leaders of France, Germany, Italy and Spain have agreed to help Chad and Niger with border controls to help stem the flow of migrants and refugees into Europe from Northern Africa. They made the pledge on Monday at a summit in the French capital, Paris, aimed at reducing the numbers of people undertaking a dangerous journey along the so-called Central Mediterranean route. During the meeting, which was also attended by the head of Libya's UN-backed government and the presidents of Chad and Niger, they also said they would accept asylum claims from refugees who apply for protection while in Africa instead of their destination countries. Marku Aikomus, spokesperson of the United Nations Commissioner for Refugees Southern Africa office, says they welcome Europe's gesture. However, more needs to be done to address the root causes of migration. Well, the first of all, uh, the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, we, we welcome the commitment made at the uh, Paris meeting on migration and asylum. We encourage by the announcement of a comprehensive plan of action that will support long-term solution to the complex issues of mixed migration and help address its root causes. In, in our experience, the, the measures that simply aim at curbing the number of arrivals do not solve the problem of forced migration. Any, any meaningful approach must include a set of strong and determined actions to ensure the, a lasting peace in conflict-ridden countries. 
as well as social and economic development in places of origin. But in terms of the macro perspective that we're starting to see here, especially with governments actually now seeing that this is a problem that they need to get their heads engaged in, what is your take from UNHCR to see such a high delegation, high level kind of approach to actually having this conversation, which is long overdue now? We, we welcome the initiative taken by the, the countries involved in this process and we try to support it in the, the best way possible. I mean, um, we've been involved in, in this process uh, in, in, in past years and repeatedly called upon European states and others to act collectively with responsibility and solidarity in line with the international obligations. And at the same time, in responding to this emergency, uh, we have mobilized over 600 staff and resources in 20 different locations to provide life-saving assistance and protection. Well, Marku, I want to look at your thoughts in terms of the trends that we're currently seeing with the migration flows. It was interesting to see the numbers that actually came out of deaths uh, through the Mediterranean terrain because we've seen less deaths in that particular route in itself. And that's good news. Do we know what's contributing uh, to that uh, positive aspect of things? Well, first of all, if I may say that we're pleased by the renewed commitment to support rescue efforts for for those in danger at Mm. sea uh, and in desert. Uh, I mean, saving lives has to remain the central to the response, as over 2,400 persons are feared to have drowned this year alone. There might be several different uh, actors sort of uh, influencing on this. I mean... What what we try to do is to raise awareness about the danger of irregular migrations and work towards enhancing the, the overall protection in the countries where are these countries of origin or the countries of a transit that people are waiting to then to 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 move on and take these perilous uh, uh, trips to 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 Europe and and also I mean. What is important is that we provide alternatives, supporting um, different ways of arriving to the safety, maybe through resettlement, third country resettlement programs, through family reunifications, and, and, and providing complementary pathways. These are very needed. That's Marku Aikomo, spokesperson for the United Nations Commissioner for Refugees, Southern Africa Office, speaking to Benjamin Moshatama. The United Nations Children's Fund warns that more than 180 million people do not have access to basic drinking water in countries affected by conflict and instability around the world. This comes as World Water Week is underway. The week marked from the 27th of August to the 1st of September is the annual focal point for the globe's water issues. UNICEF says people living in fragile situations are four times more likely to lack basic drinking water than populations in non-fragile situations. More from James Elder, UNICEF Regional Office in Nairobi. What we don't often appreciate is that beyond the, the footage and the big headlines is that once these people escape and walk for days and days to protect themselves and their families from this violence, there is another killer lurking every single day, and that is dirty water. 
and, and dirty water then is this second great threat that stalks these people and leads to many, many, many thousands of deaths in conflicts after the bullets have stopped. James, what do then these people alternatively use uh, as a means of water and sanitation? Well, what happens is a couple of things. As people move across countries, they are desperately short of clean water, so they will take water from wherever they can get it. Normally this water then then won't be clean, particularly for the youngest members of the family. By drinking dirty water, they'll get some sort of, you know, stomach and diarrheal disease, from which time they then are unable to keep food down. And you get this vicious cycle between disease and malnutrition, whereby it doesn't matter how much food you give someone, if they've got these diarrheal diseases, then they will go into worse forms of malnutrition. That's why it's so important to remember in these scenarios that food is very, very important, but clean water will often be that difference between between life and death. We've seen that in most in instances in areas where there's conflict and instability, um, there would be cases where water is used uh, as, as a weapon of war in some cases where there are deliberate water cuts. Why do we find that this is the case? Even in the worst conflicts, there are simple rules of engagement and there are rules of war and all parties in the conflict ideally would respect respect those, certainly denying civilians water would be a breach of, of international law. What UNICEF finds is that in these conflicts, the supplying water to those people who have been displaced or those people who have ended up in camps, those people who have had their lives turned upside down for no fault of their own, is one of the most expensive things we do. It's absolutely essential because it is the thing that will prevent disease and it is the thing that sustains life. But at the same time, whether it's trucking water, whether it's chlorination, whether it's pipeline, it's an incredibly expensive part of our work that we continuously need donor support for. That's James Elder, United Nations Children's Fund Regional Office in Nairobi, talking to Hamotsu Mopulani. Headlines now with Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Tracy. Making headlines, thousands of Zimbabweans have marched through Harare in a show of support for First Lady Grace Mugabe, who evaded assault allegations in South Africa by claiming diplomatic immunity. At least eight people, including civilians, have been killed and 29 injured in the latest bout of growing sectarian unrest in the Central African Republic. And finally, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has led his first cabinet meeting in five months after a long stay in London where he received treatment for an undisclosed condition. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Pula, 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 pula. 
Maria Macande em Valeroa, aqui na Miriam. Está na companhia do Serviço em Língua Portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. There are thought to be around 2,000 languages spoken across Africa, but globalization and the legacy of colonialism have increased concerns that the languages that have held communities together for centuries could soon disappear. The BBC's Pumza Pilani has spent time with the San Indigenous hunter-gatherers who were the first inhabitants of Southern Africa to ask why dying languages should be kept alive. With 11 official languages and many more unofficial ones spoken across the country, South Africa is unique. More than just a means of communicating, language forms an integral part of the identity of those living here. The Northern Cape is the largest province in South Africa, but it's the least populated. This part of the world is semi-arid, but many years ago made the perfect home for the indigenous people of this region, the Khoisan. In recent times, Khoisan has become a word used to describe two separate groups of people, the Khoikhoi, who traditionally worked the land as farmers, and the San, who were hunter-gatherers. While their traditional practices have all but died out, language is one of the few things that connects them to their past. The most well-known of the Khoi languages is Nama. The era of apartheid left the Nama people splintered and their language isn't recognized as one of South Africa's official languages. It's left some turning to modern means to keep it alive. In the town of Springbok, Dina Christian presents an hour-long radio show in her mother tongue, Nama. It's on air five times a week and it's the only one of its kind. From this small studio inside the local station Nama FM, she's not just talking to the nearby community, but actually people in other parts of South Africa, like Cape Town, and even in Namibia, home to more Nama speakers. For me it's important because the Nama language is going, the language is for me so important, so that we can go back to our forefathers. But despite her teaching, day-to-day, Dina and the rest of her community now speak Afrikaans, a language with Dutch roots. The white men come in and they say, you don't speak Nama, because I don't understand that language. And my mother told me in Nama, you must talk my language. Down the road from the radio station, I meet Vila Bakir, a community leader. He works closely with Dina. For the past few years, he's been lobbying the government to introduce Nama in local schools. If you don't have a language, you don't have nothing. I am a Nama, so I want everyone to recognize me as a Nama, and I want to talk in my language. They're not the only people in South Africa fighting to keep their language alive. 
About three hours east of Springbuck is the town of Uppington, home to the oldest surviving sand language of South Africa. Its survival currently rests on three elderly sisters. When I was a child, I only spoke Ngu, and I had a lot of people speaking the language. Even when we went to other neighboring areas, you would hear people speaking Ngu. Those were good times. We loved our language. At the age of 84, Katrina Esau and her sisters are the last speakers of Ngu, believed to be the most indigenous language of southern Africa. With no other fluent speakers in the world apart from this family, the language has now been recognized by the UN as critically endangered. Katrina has been running a school in her home for about 10 years. In a small wooden hut, she teaches the 112 sounds and 45 distinct clicks of Ngu to a group of local children. I am teaching the language because I don't want it to become extinct. I don't want the language to die when my family and I die. Known to her students as Omar Khielmate, Katrina is busy teaching the children the parts of the body in Ngu. Pointing at the whiteboard with a stick in her hand, she commands the attention of her pupils, quick to correct those that don't sound the part. Like many other African languages, Ngu had been passed down orally over generations, but it's this method that has threatened its survival. Until recently, there was no record of it as a written language. When these languages of small communities like the Ngu, when they disappear, it's not only the language which is, it disappears, but it's also the concepts which, which disappear. To stop this from happening, Professor Matthias Bretzinger from the Center of African Language Diversity at the University of Cape Town have begun to work with Katrina Esau to create and document a new alphabet and the basic rules of grammar. Also keeping the language alive is 16-year-old Marianne Prinsloo, Katrina's best student. When I speak this language, it is so lovely. It is really lovely to speak it because... My mother's mother, mother, did speak this language, and I love it so much. For the Khoisan communities, that connection is at the heart of why they want to protect their language. It's more than just a nostalgia for a time gone by. It's to ensure a sense of belonging, a shared identity for generations to come. Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. 
Catch us every Friday at 10:00 hours Central African time and Saturday at 13:00 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catch us every Friday at 10:00 hours Central African time and Saturday at 13:00 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. With 23% of premature deaths attributable to unhealthy environments in the African region, delegates at the 67th session of the World Health Organization Regional Committee which is underway at the Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, say there is a need for a multi-sectoral approach to address in a more effective way the impact of the environment on health. Currently, environmental change and challenges, including extreme weather events, are occurring at an unprecedented pace, often making it difficult to fight diseases like malaria, dengue fever, Rift Valley fever and the Zika virus. In our weekly look at health issues, we focus our attention on the link between health and environment with Dr. Magaran Bagoyoko, the team leader for public health and environment at the World Health Organization Regional Office for Africa. We are very optimistic, but there is some prerequisites. The prerequisites are, first of all, most of the risks are from different sectors than the health. So the health sector alone cannot defeat this risk. The key issue is these risks should be managed through an integrated approach, multisectoral approach. So Africa can defeat if we put together multisectoral country task team that includes all the development sectors, agriculture, industry, water, mineral resources, education and civil society. Africa can also defeat this if we engage the community. One key issue is community leadership and stewardship because communities are very important in the health system. And they are not only benefiting from these actions, but they should be empowered so that they become a true actors. This is one way to be able to manage these risks. The other very good issue is to build the partnership, sub-sub partnership, in-country partnership, inter-country partnership, and we involve also our regional economic communities like SADEX, like uh, ECOWAS and so on. In your opinion, Doctor, how are rising temperatures affecting the distribution and impact of vector-borne diseases across sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, we know that uh, this year we are facing an unprecedented increases in the risk of these vector-borne diseases. These diseases include malaria, and Africa is the home to malaria. 
We have epidemics of yellow fevers. We have epidemics of chigungunya. We have reef valley fever. We have dengue. And recently we have Zika virus. So all these diseases are what we call climate-sensitive diseases. And we know climate change affects directly the epidemiology or the proliferation of these diseases by, for instance, creating the suitable temperature for the parasite to develop, for malaria, and for the vector to develop. Because in Africa, there are two main conditions that limit the proliferation of these diseases. The one is rainfall, so if there is no water, there is no vector-borne diseases. The second is temperature. Below 16 degrees, much of these vectors cannot develop. So any change of temperature will really increase the burden of these diseases. For instance, the highland area in eastern Africa were considered as free of malaria because of temperature were not suitable for this. But today, with the degradation of the environment by the population and the increase of temperature in highland areas, there is malaria epidemics. And directly also through what we call extreme climate weather events by creating floods, cyclones, destruction of health systems, and climate migration, people migrating from one area to area, all this will contribute to exacerbate these vector-borne diseases. Dr. Magaram Bagayoko, team leader for public health and environment at the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Ladiha at Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. Time now for our economics update with Wasani. Good evening, Tracy. A U.S. court has ruled uh, to lift two restraining notices that had blocked a coupon payment on Congo Republic's 363 million U.S. dollar euro bond amid a, a billion dollar legal dispute between government and a construction firm. A payment on the bond maturing in 2029 was frozen in June after the Commission's import-export filed two restraining orders to the bond's trustee, the Delaware Trust Company. Congolese authorities had transferred the payment a day before. It's not clear if the coupon payments have now resurfaced. And South Africa needs to push harder for its own development agenda during multilateral meetings such as the BRICS summit. This according to University of Johannesburg academic Weston Silaho. Speaking at a forum of BRICS Africa Corporation, he said such economic partnerships could translate to development and growth for the country. President Jacob Zuma will lead a delegation to this year's summit, which is being held in China next week. Silaho says uh, so far the tangible benefits have been very little. Many a time we make commitments that often do not have returns for us, especially our people on the ground. And we only realize that after those documents have already been passed and agreed upon, the onus, the responsibility is on South Africa and by extension on Africa to ensure that as they continue engaging and being a party to the BRICS deliberations, they do not lose sight of what it is that they wish to achieve from the BRICS member states. 
Zambian Electricity Utility Copper Belt Energy Corporation and Lenkos Mopani Copper Mines have reached an agreement to restore full power supply to the mine from Wednesday. Details of the agreement, which was facilitated by government, will be finalized over a six-week period. The power utility cut supply to Mopani to 94 megawatts from 130 megawatts after a dispute over new tariffs. South Africa's ruling ANC has called for the prosecution of past and present employees of power utility ESCOM who were involved in paying more than 115 million US dollars to Gupta-linked company Trillion Capital Holdings. This comes after power utility admitted that it has lied about paying the money to the firm and consultancy McKinsey. Initially, ESCOM claimed the payments were above board following advocate Jeff Badlander's release of a damning report into Trillion. However, on Monday, ESCOM was forced to concede that global management consultancy firm Oliver Weinman had in fact red-flagged the payments and recommended a legal review on the transactions. ANC spokesperson Zizi Kodwa. These revelations reveal, among others, the deep-seated corruption within ESCOM and it is time that the minister and government must act to make corruption an exception, not a new normal. And we must send a very strong signal even to those who left as former directors that they've got a responsibility and not only to act but to account. Therefore, the minister must lay criminal charges against, against all of them because it is clear that it is important that we must protect the power utility against any looters, against people who want to use or who make us use it for their own private and individual interests. And South Africa's competition watchdog says it will no longer hold talks with banks offering to cooperate in an investigation into alleged collusion in foreign exchange trading. The Competition Commission says uh, it had found more than a dozen local and foreign banks colluded to coordinate trading in South African and U.S. currencies. And Egypt's money supply was up 38.74% at the end of July from a year earlier. Money supply stood at 166 billion U.S. dollars. Meanwhile, Angola's net foreign exchange reserves rose to $17.45 billion in July from $16.78 billion in June. Financial indicators now. The U.S. dollar is at uh, 13.01. South African rents 10.01. Botswana Pula and 9.01. Zambian Kwacha also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.83 against the euro. Commodities now. Gold $1,319. Platinum $1,000 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil $51.87 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thank you, Wasani. Time now for your sports. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibudi Makura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. And starting off with cricket news, Cricket South Africa have confirmed the appointment of Otis Gibson as the head coach of the Proteas across all three formats. His contract will run from mid-September when he starts preparing the squad for the home series against Bangladesh up until the conclusion of the ICC World Cup in mid-2019. Now, Gibson is currently the bowling coach of the England Test Team 
team and has previously served as head coach of the West Indies. As a player, though, the 40-year-old Gibson had a distinguished playing career for the West Indies, representing them in two test matches, the second of which was the New Year Test at Newlands in Cape Town back in 1999, as well as 15 one-day internationals as an all-rounder between 1995 and 1999. On to football news, Uganda's national football team, the Cranes, take on Egypt in their first leg of the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier. The first leg of the doubleheader World Cup qualifier will take place on Thursday at the Mandela National Stadium in Kampala. Cranes head coach Moses Basena says his side have done enough homework on the Pharaohs and they are ready to win the match. We are appealing to everybody, every Ugandan football loving Ugandan, to come and support the team that we promise we are not going to disappoint them. Uh, we've been very strong at home and we believe we are going to keep the same. And we are demanding that 12th person to come and join us on Thursday. While Egypt is leading Group E of the 2018 World Cup qualifier with six points ahead of Uganda, Ghana, as well as Congo, Brazzaville. Meanwhile, Cameroon head coach Hugo Bruce admits that their 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign is doomed if they do not at least take four points off Nigeria in their back-to-back clashes. Now, the Group B rivals meet in southeastern Nigerian city of Oyo this Friday and in the Cameroonian capital Yaoundé three days later. Nigeria topped the Africa Group of Death with six points. After two rounds, African champions Cameroon have two points, while Zambia and Nigeria have one point each. Now, Bruce is hoping for an away draw and a home victory, results that could reduce the gap between the countries to one point. The remaining two qualifying rounds are scheduled for October and November, with only the five group winners in Africa securing places at the Global Football Showcase. And finally, South Africa's number one women's wheelchair tennis player, Khotatso Munjane, saw off Mackenzie Soldan of the USA in straight sets of 6-2, 6-1 to qualify for the second round of the US Open on Tuesday. Here is Anthony Moritani, wheelchair tennis South Africa's public relations manager, with more details. Khotatso Munjane started with an an incredible uh, straight set victory against... uh, a, a USA player called Mackenzie Saldon, uh, where she defeated her 6-2-6-1. And uh, later this evening, she will, be, she will go up against uh, a fourth seed, the world number four, uh, Merlin Bay from the Netherlands, who is actually a tough opponent. It should be a very interesting match. Well, the Zion Sports News at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Recapping the top stories this hour, judgment on a petition to nullify Uhuru Kenyatta's re-election will be delivered on Friday. More than 20 people are now thought to have died in Texas as a result of Tropical Storm Harvey. Well, that wraps up Africa Digest for today from myself, Tracy Bumgard. Producer Leander Mayomet, technical producer Wiseman Mantlele, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening.
For comments on the show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Don't Forget to Pray by AKA and Anati. I know we just saved the day Superhero, I gon' need a speedo in the cake X-ray vision through your evil ways Tell your people don't forget to pray yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Don't forget to pray yeah, yeah. Do you know that God is on the way? Yeah, yeah. Don't forget to pray yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you know that God is on the way? Swag drip when you track kids to do whack shit for some smash. Classics for you bastards like a man hips in the Tupperware. Gold rings like a shovel ranks. Ideas for you fucking brands. White tears in the duffel bag. I'ma die here in the motherland. Don't forget to check the blind spot. Remember, remember, I'm an icon. Smoke it till I'm on the high horse. Don't forget to get the eye drops. Please be careful what you wish for. Rock and roll, sex pistols. Don't you niggas see the zip code? Brian's Oh no, but you know.